Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. And this time we uh, like to have a, a focus on one particular person in history. And this person is Ibn Rush, as I call him. Uh, I'm not very familiar with the name, uh, but uh, Ibn Rush. And Stephen, you, you would like to say some words about him before we uh, discuss his ideas. Uh, I, I can certainly give it a shot. Um, not being an expert in Islamic philosophy, and uh, and with the realization that if one goes to Wikipedia or the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, within a few minutes, you'll get probably more and more accurate information than I could sort of deliver off the top of my head. But in in a way, Ibn Rushd is a perfect example, exemplar of the kind of person we're interested in in this podcast, because he represents uh, a very clear attempt to unite Athens and Jerusalem. Uh, he was an Islamic philosopher living in the 12th century. His life spanned most of the 12th century. Uh, he lived in what is Spain, the, the Iberian Peninsula. Um, he was a philosopher's philosopher. He was a very rational thinker, um, although at the same time a committed Muslim. He was also uh, very much of a philosophical temperament, and he was one of the key figures responsible for uh, taking Aristotle, which had been translated from the Greek into the Arabic, and trying to harmonize Aristotle with the religion of Islam and with a, a religious viewpoint more generally. It should be mentioned that Ibn Rushd was is seen as kind of the end of a line of rationalizing philosophers within the Islamic tradition uh, of several figures that could be briefly named. Al-Kindi is traditionally listed as the first. He, he lived in the ninth century. 
um, and uh, Al Farabi, Ibn Sina are are all are all great figures in the Islamic philosophical tradition, um, and it's very interesting that whole tradition and how it came to be um, with this you know discovery by the Arabs and by and, and by this new religion of Islam of this tremendous intellectual legacy that they came into contact with in the early years of Islam, in the first couple of centuries of Islam, uh, because of the military expansion of the, of the religion uh, across the region, they came into cultural contact with the Byzantine Empire and with Christianity and with the heritage of the Greek philosophers, which was still extant within the Eastern Roman Empire, which Islam started, you gradually ate up over the course of the over the centuries. And the, the Muslims sort of discovered Greek philosophy then, and uh, a tremendous program of the translation of so much of Greek philosophy, Greek medicine, Greek science uh, into Arabic took place in the first you know, few centuries of Islam, which is a, it's, it's a whole interesting story on, on its own. Um, and that helped to seed Islamic thought and spark a kind of renaissance within Islam of people taking the the, the fruits of, of, of Greek rational thought uh, and applying it within the this new cultural and religious context of Islam. And Ibn Rushd is seen as kind of almost the last great figure in this you know, in this uh, philosophical school that um, kind of ended with him. He was, certainly wasn't the last, but he's the last great figure. And um, but the end of his story is kind of the beginning of the story of 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 the Christian encounter with uh, re-encounter of, of the West with uh, with. Aristotle and with the Greeks, because Ibn Rushd was part of also uh, a, a not only uh, an influential movement within Islam, but many of these Islamic philosophers and their works then got translated into Latin and then entered into the in, entered into the West. Uh, and so then there was a kind of Renaissance. Uh, I mean, Renaissance isn't the right word because that was more the 1400s. But there was a uh, an early sort of re-encounter with this, these ideas of the Greeks that was interesting because it started in Greek and then it kind of funneled through the Arabic and then back into the Latin. And so a lot of people were reintroduced to Aristotle through things like the writings of Ibn Rushd, um, yes. who was uh, who who wrote so eloquently about Aristotle and and you know and so much of Ibn Rushd's work was actually analyzing Aristotle producing voluminous commentaries on Aristotle uh, and then taking the thought of Aristotle even further in, in, in the ways that, that he could. Uh, and much of that then got you know, incorporated back into European thought. Uh, people like Thomas Aquinas were, uh, were uh, influenced by Ibn Rushd. There was a kind of you know, answer to back and forth, uh, but not so much of a pushback. It's more like you know, Christianity... Um, and, and medieval Christian thought was very much um, saw Ibn Rushd as a, as an ally in a way in this in this process of bringing the sort of the rational thinking of the Greeks into 
uh, into the Christian context. Yes. So I don't that, know if that's an, uh, enough I, I of it. I think that was a very good summarize uh, of his uh, action. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if you even could, uh, we could ask the question, would the Renaissance in the 14th century, would it happen without Ibn Rush and the Islamic tradition of keeping the Greek philosophy alive? A very interesting question. I'm sure the historians uh, have strong opinions about that. And I don't know if I'm allowed to have an opinion on that as, as a non-historian, uh, but but or at least an educated opinion. But it, it's, it certainly seems to me that this heritage of Islamic thought coming into um, coming into European thought around you know 11, 1200s was perhaps a necessary precursor to the to the full-fledged re Renaissance which happened uh, a, a century or two after that. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a highly controversial statement to say that the U European Renaissance really could not have happened without the earlier, intellectual renaissance that that happened within Islam. Uh, there's just so much that got transmitted through through these uh, these Islamic thinkers in, into Europe. Um, yeah, this, yeah, this whole yeah. thing that went on in Andalusia, as you pointed out, Stephen, in, in Spain, uh, where where Jewish, Christian, and Muslim uh, thinkers were were sort of cross-fertilizing one another so to say and and, and they were um, listening to each other and, and and getting inspiration from each other and, and building on each other and, and and they all had the I guess Aristotle as as their sort of um, shared focal point I think that's that's so beautiful because I mean in today's world where we often see uh, these religious groups as as being in a in some sort of a collision uh, with each other, it is good to be reminded that it hasn't always been like that. It do doesn't need to be like that, and that uh, essentially there is enough commonality to be able to uh, build something meaningful together uh, philosophically. Yeah. I think I also believe that his method, his way of doing hermeneutics was something that was brought into the the European way of, of writing. And like Thomas Aquinas, you mentioned, mm. I, I think he's, uh, he uses in many ways the same way of argumentation and thinking. And and the, the method is, is, one thing is that he, he did summarizing the ideas of Aristoteles, but then he also went through whole uh, books of Aristoteles and he tried to comment on each part of the books and, and then he also uh, brought it further with his own ideas based on the words of Aristoteles so he had like a three step method he first summarizing and commenting on each word and then trying to bring in another perspectives mm -hmm. I would just like to very briefly return to something that Stephen pointed out that that um, you know because uh, at least one figure with whom uh, Ibn Rushd was very much in sort of uh, contradiction with was this uh, 
I, I believe uh, Egyptian uh, Muslim scholar uh, Al Ghazali, uh, mm -hmm. and and uh, so Ibn Rushd was maintaining the fact, in contradiction to to this other gentleman, that um, that philosophy was a legitimate and even a necessary approach to understanding the Quran or religion in general, whereas Al Ghazali uh, was of the opinion that that philosophy was an insufficient or a wrong sort of approach to religion. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that you know, this bringing together of Athens and Jerusalem in the thinking of Ibn Rushd is an important precedence that, that uh, we can learn and be inspired by. Yes, Al-Ghazali wrote a famous treatise called Tahafata Philosopha, or the, uh, the Incoherence of the Philosophers. How, how that's been been translated. And Ibn Rushd uh, replied with his own treatise called Tahafat Tahafat, or the incoherence of the incoherence, which is a, a direct refutation of um, uh, of Al-Ghazali. But the, the question is, how many people read Ibn Rushd's refutation of Al-Ghazali? He was over there on the sort of the extreme Western edge of the uh, of the Islamic world of the Islamicate world. And um, and one can legitimately ask the extent to which Ibn Rushd was even read within the Islamic world. There's no question of his influence in the European world, and so much of his writings passed into Europe uh, via the Latin. But being the sort of end of this philosophical tradition in Islam, you know, how many people were reading him versus reading the Mu'tazilite uh, theologians, you know, as represented by uh, by Al Ghazali and others, or were reading more the 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 different efflorescence and manifestation of the philosophical spirit which arose in Persia around the time of Ibn Rushd and which had its efflorescence a little bit later. And I'm referring to people like Sorhawardi and Mullah Sadra, um, who represent a kind of um, a different take on bringing in the the philosophy of the ancient Greeks into an Islamic context, whereas Al Ghazali was much more rationalist in a in, in a traditional sense that, let's say, Europeans would be very familiar with through through Thomas Aquinas. The different sort of take that you see in Sorhawardi and Molisadra, which arguably had an even bigger impact, was more Platonizing than Aristotelian and, and would have been more influenced by Plotinus uh, and, and Plato and than, than it would have been by, by Aristotle. And so it adds a degree of complexity and interest to, the, to this whole topic because what, when we talk about Athens and Jerusalem and the, you know, and, and what is the, what's the real sort of conflict that Ibn Rushd represents for us, it's not so much a conflict between, say, religion and philosophy, but it's a conflict between Islamic religion and a particular school of philosophy, namely Aristotelian philosophy, yeah. which has a very different kind of flavor and a very different set of starting assumptions than, than Platonic philosophy. And just, yeah, uh, just to declare that, because it's of course it's it's easier to put. Platonic philosophy into an, a religious way of mm -hmm. thinking. 
than an Aristotelian. So, so when they mm -hmm. was focusing on Aristoteles, it became more difficult. And if, like, if you have read um, Umberto Eco's book, uh, In the Name of the Rose, then you will see how afraid the, the religious people was uh, towards Aristotelic uh, books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and especially yeah so so it so of course there there what this is one of the one of the important uh, uh, discussion also in the Athenian uh, perspective what what kind of rationality should we focus on yes and that's also I think what makes even though you might think of Ibn Rushd as being okay this guy lived almost a thousand years ago and this is just merely of historical interest I think that the whole question of Ibn Rushd's life and work and reception within Islam is is a current issue. I mean, it's a it's still a living issue because what Ibn Rushd tried to do in uniting these sort of different ways of thinking and arguably ultimately failing at doing so is the same sort of questions that we're asking today. Is there a way to bring together these two great threads of you know of, of Western thought? of of the of the rational versus the the faith-based and we have examples historical examples of people who have tried and let's say failed in the past can we learn from their attempt can we learn from the failure of that attempt um does the attempt and the failure of that attempt translate coherently into the 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 present day context at least where we are in the west where the primary, um, the primary parties are no longer Aristotelianism and Islam, but we're we're talking more about a kind of Christian civilization and um, and and materialistic philosophy. Um, do 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 the two map onto the the issue with Athens and Jerusalem as we as as we experience it today? And to the extent that they do map onto each other, can what can we learn from that? Exactly, and, and I I don't know um, to the extent that I'm unfamiliar with the with the sort of the argumentation between uh, Al Ghazali and uh, Ibn Rushd, um, uh, and 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 the, the way that it relates to exactly said that our, our our current sort of thinking around these issues is whether you see rational and a philosophical thinking as a way to better understand matters that are of metaphysical nature or let's say pertain mm -hmm. to religion or whether you see it as as almost like an insult to religion to say that that you can do so that that supposedly the realm of religion and metaphysics is such that that it cannot even be approached uh, in this way uh, or maybe another way is you know there's this talk about the god of holes you know like that where where the divine exists, where science fails or rationality fails or philosophy fails, and of course this is leaving currently less and less room for God. Um, he's being sort of squeezed out of the picture as <laughs> as these these uh, approaches develop, and and of course uh, then uh, Ibn Rushd's uh, approach seems to be no. I mean it's not that that's not the case. It's it's not by um, not by finding where where rationality 
does not uh, sort of have access, but it's true rationality and and uh, philosophy that we can actually better understand and appreciate those wonders and mysteries that are mm. of supernatural, so to say, nature. And this is where I feel a little bit conflicted because I mean, Ibn Rushd experienced a bit of persecution in his day. You know, his ideas were seen as heretical by mm. Orthodox Muslims. And I want to root for the guy. You know, I read about his life. I, wa I, I want to root for him. I feel like I'm on his side in the sense of I want to see harmony, a sort of harmony uh, achieved between uh, between these two schools of thought, which seem to be at war with each other. But at the same time, I wonder whether what Ibn Rushd was trying to do, what his project was, was actually achievable in the way that he thought it was. And what I mean by that is Ibn Rushd really believed that these metaphysical questions could be resolved through logic. Uh, and Al-Ghazali felt that they couldn't, you know, they're, they're resolved through, to, to, to simplify it, through revelation. You know, the, the truth has been sent down, it's in the pages of the Quran and, and, in, the, and in the Hadith, and that is our source of knowledge. That is our source of, of knowledge about the world in a, uh, for example, you know, is the world eternal or not? You know, are human souls separate or is there only one soul that, you know, that, that we're all uh, sort of, uh, that we all partake of? These sorts of questions. Ibn felt you can have rational answers to these questions. And people like Al-Ghazali felt that, that reason is not your, your principal guide in, in these matters. Um, are we on the side of those who believe that actually, you know, these two should come together? Is that sort of the right way forward for us today? Or is the right way forward instead to acknowledge that these matters of metaphysics, you know, the nature of the soul, the nature of God, you know, God in his essence versus God in his actions, all of these sorts of philosophical questions that occupied so much of the time of these Muslim philosophers, perhaps all of these topics are not... They're not scientific topics. They're, they're above the divided line, you know, that Plato talks about in Plato's philosophy. You know, above this divided line are all the metaphysical questions, and below it is the world that we can observe, that we can measure, that we can, you know, that we can test. Um, below that divided line is the is the world of science. It's the world that we can actually apply these rational methods to and come up with. Uh, and come up with a, a pretty definitive answer as we iterate over time. Whereas above the divided line, these questions of theology or, or theological philosophy that so much of Ibn Rushd's time was, was uh, devoted to, perhaps there is no, there is no rational way to a, a certain answer. You know, maybe in a way Ibn Rushd was, was just as wrong as Al-Ghazali was, that, that there is no correct answer to the question of whether you know, from a from a philosophical point of view from a as opposed to a scientific point of view as to say whether the universe had a beginning or not i, I think i think ibn rushad i like this way of thinking or, or his answer on on this question you are raising and it if i understand him correct he he, he says that uh, on the on over the divine line or above the divine line, you, you have to use allegoric or metaphoric way of explaining something. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and below, you could b- use more logical or empirical. Uh, I'm not sure what they will call that. But the important thing is that you, you have, on if you are trying to express something about above the divine line, you have to use metaphorical, allegorical quest, uh, mm-hmm. way of speaking. And that's mm-hmm. also why if a book is a, uh, is divine, then you can't uh, understand it literally. You have to understand it allegorically. Mm-hmm. If not, it wouldn't be a, a divine book. We often we 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 often think that uh, we we understand Plato as the one with uh, all the allegorical and metaphorical uh, way of thinking, and Aristoteles he's he's mm-hmm. more down to earth. But of course, if you read the, the metaphysic of, of Aristoteles, you will see that he is he has also a metaphorical and a divine way of of thinking. Also, this it, they are not contradicting each other, mm. and and like w- one thing they are similar on is, is this idea that uh, there is a connection between wisdom and divinity. And this is one of the big questions uh, raising also by Ibn Rush is could could we under could there be a divine something divine that is not uh, how to say it omniscient to, uh, to 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 know everything to to be to have wisdom could could divinity be, be without wisdom and I think that's a very interesting question to 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 raise. May I just also suggest that uh, that while was as you said, Aristotle had the more metaphysical uh, perspectives. I think that uh, even if you take the cave analogy, the famous cave analogy of of Plato's, uh, and one could say that even if one lived in a cave and were aware of the fact that one what one sees are just shadows of a higher reality, yet those shadows represent something and although they're not sort of how to say one-to-one two but they're more like maybe a map of that you know just the same way as a map gives us an idea of the terrain without actually giving us any real picture of or image of the hills and the flowers or the or the trees or whatever that um that divine scripture uh, although it does it is impossible, in fact, to bring things, if there are things that are of some higher order, uh, it is impossible to make us aware of them or to be able to fully understand them in this state of development or in this world. But it is possible to somehow sort of translate them and and map them to the realities of this world. And I think this is maybe what you were also referring to in terms of of um, analogies and, mm. and and symbolism, and I think this is I, I I think this is an important sort of connection point between uh, Athens and Jerusalem, also to bear in mind. Mm. And I, I think also that uh, Aristoteles would be uh, I, I would agree with you, Cameron, that that the, what 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 is in our world is in many way. Uh, also something that is p- part of the divine it's not like only shadows or yeah mm. it, it because reality is p- 
part of what exists and what has been yeah, brought into existence. Or mm. now that's that's the wrong way of of explaining it because uh, what what has exists has always exist, but the mm -hmm. quality of what exists necessarily need, you, you in the Aristotelian way of thinking you need some kind of divinity to give quality to existence there's a mm -hmm. so there's a difference between existence that has always been just as ex existence and the quality the, the form a, a formed existence that needs a divinity that's that's the argument of Ibn Rushd and Aristotle the way I have understood it and mm -hmm. So there's a and so Aristotle would would be on the on the side of those who just take the world as 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 is, whereas Plato would be on the side of those who take the world as being an, an image of something more real. Is that is that a, a good way to kind of boil it down? You know, idealism yeah. versus realism. Yeah, I, I would say that. But also, the, you could discuss how how great is the cave metaphor. Does it does it fit, and it. It fits uh, the Plat Plato's way of speaking in some way, but I'm not sure that it actually fits him in all way. But that has mm. often been the understanding of uh, of his philosophy. Yes. Mm. To, to be honest, I, I, my idea, my thinking is that the, the the cave is mostly about how difficult it is for human to still live in a world where people don't understand your uh, way of understanding the truth mm -hmm. because they're, they're living in what we would call like cultural truth they, they have, they're, they're stuck into the culture and not able to to see the universal mm. truths so and, and this is the main reason why he explained the metaphor is how difficult it is to be Socrates in the Athenian society when mm. everybody believes that you are just stupid when you talk about this universal truth. Mm. Yeah, there's no yeah. question that the the cave analogy is incredibly powerful. I I I I'll 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 sort of put a stake in the ground uh, to to give it even more reality than simply. A, a way of uh, a way of differentiating those who have a bit more wisdom from those who have less wisdom, and coming in from a, a background in in science, particularly in in theoretical physics, there's a strong intuition from our the fact that we understand the world so well by recourse to a very small relatively small set of mathematical laws which the world seems to follow with uncanny precision that that these mathematical laws of the universe seem to be in that category of platonic forms that plato could only have dreamed about 2500 years ago I mean, the fact that you could write down these these purely abstract constructions of the mind, you know, with a few symbols. And these few symbols are able to allow you to extrapolate into the physical world to like 
11 or 12 significant digits. I mean, it's an unfathomable degree of accuracy in the case of uh, in the case of of quantum field theory that one is left as 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 a, as a scientist looking at this unreasonable effectiveness of of our mathematical theories of the world. One is left with a suspicion that the world is kind of platonic in its structure, that that there is a kind of undergirding simplicity that underlies the complexity of everything that that we observe. And that that simplicity is, is, you know, Plato couldn't have have talked about it in these terms, so he used the metaphor of the cave. But um, it's... But yeah, it, it just strikes it, it, me as being a plausible, a plausible yeah. thing. And it, and it, and it does uh, speak about it in Timaeus, and and the way he expressed these different geometrical figures that is we are able to to understand as harmonic, is 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 amazing. It's it's mm. just, just this, but of course he he connects them with reality on a very special way and also with our, our soul and our way of of being so it's mm. in a very interesting way a very special way mm. but of course like if if we if we if we talk about the aristotelian physics then the, the picture is a little bit different because we we don't believe in the aristotelian physics today mm. and and this is also a, a very interesting question that we, we we often when we when we discuss something uh, about his, some some historical uh, facts or his, we often present them like okay but this was like an old I- idea and they are wrong today or mm-hmm. the, this idea is correct and but we I, I think it's it's important to to differ between uh, uh, yeah, how it, it is originated how it is made. And and if it's still valid, uh, and my, my point is that because uh, Kuh, uh, Thomas Kuhn wrote about this and he said like yeah okay but he was in another world in another paradigm so he he, he had his his ideas and we have ours, mm-hmm. uh, but um, what I think is that if. Aristoteles or somebody else in the Greek society actually had thrown a stone and done some simple experiment, they would have realized pretty quickly that his idea was wrong in his in his time. So in, in my ideas, it, it is okay. They they have really they have really hit something special in in some occasion and in other occasion they, they okay they they were they were wrong and i guess if you if you look at how much aristoteles actually wrote of course he couldn't have really great uh, knowledge about everything but he tried and he tried a, maybe a little bit too much in mm. in my perspective one wonders what what kept the the Greeks for all their incredible brilliance. It was almost this miraculous uh, efflorescence of thought in such a short period of time with with such a fairly small population of people and limited geographically. What kept them from the full discovery of the scientific method, not just of theorizing about things, but of measuring them and then and then hypothesizing. Based on those measurements and then testing those hypotheses and, and iterating, 
And even the Muslims, for all of their brilliance and for the brilliance of people like Ibn Rushd and this whole you know, galaxy of enlightened individuals for, for, for those centuries that, that the Islamic civilization flourished, they didn't discover it either. Why did it take until the European Renaissance, particularly the scientific revolution, to hit upon this idea of actually measuring and testing your ideas against against the world in a way that produces objectively verifiable theories that then can become a, a kind of collective heritage of a civilization and, and allows us to accumulate knowledge and to keep building in the kind of stair-step fashion upon the knowledge that came before. What, what was it? What was that special thing that allowed allowed that to happen only only a few centuries ago and only in the context of the of the, of the European Renaissance and scientific revolution uh and even though I mean and we want to give all credit to to those who came before and what they were able to achieve I mean the Greeks didn't strike upon the scientific method as we know it but they aside from the philosophy they were able to create amazing instruments that we only know of through a few brief references in in books and things like the Antikythera mechanism that were you know dredged from the from the bottom of the Aegean Sea a century ago and that turned out to be a kind of mechanical computation device of amazing complexity that was able to predict the motions of the planets and the coming of eclipses and all sorts of other things they managed to do this without the modern scientific method and without actual theories that that we might think would be, if not necessary, certainly very helpful to the construction of devices such as this. So we absolutely have to give credit to to earlier civilizations that you know that might not have struck upon the, the sort of the scientific method in in its full in its full power, but were still still able to, still able to produce amazing uh, uh, amazing wonders in the physical world. Cameron, do you have any? also on the question yeah i mean i to me uh, to to go back to some of the sort of fundamentals of this conversation about ibn rushd and and uh, athens and jerusalem i i think to me the a, a very important and fascinating question is that of human rationality in general and and i think one aspect of it is that is is human rationality uh, something universal in other words, uh, uh, and 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 this this is in a in a way I would like to also uh, connect this to to uh, Jürgen Habermas' theory of communication. I mean, if if we were to actually uh, leave aside all sort of um, how do I say selfish motives and so forth, would would we have would we be connected by universal rationality? That would it make it possible for us? to find truth uh, not only um, in, in matters that are uh, easily measurable in, in terms of uh, physics or something like that, but in, in, in those issues that are now very important and, and uh, maybe sort of matters of even human survival, I mean, are, would we be able, for instance, as followers of different religions of, or, or, or different worldviews, would we be able to use our rationality as a means of finding a common view and being able to concur on what is right and true? 
Huge question. It, is reason, maybe reason is necessary, but is it sufficient? You know, maybe it's a necessary precondition for a, a kind of future goal that we would like to see civilization attain, which is, a, let's say, a higher degree of cooperation, a higher degree of um, of coherence on, on a global level, which does seem incidentally necessary for the near-term survival of our species. We're going to have to figure out how to work together more closely than we have in the past. Is reason or a rational approach a sufficient you know, uh, 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 let's uh, let's accept that it's necessary, but is it sufficient? Mm. And if it's not sufficient, what else do we need? Well, that I guess that's the whole theme of Athens and Jerusalem. You know, the Athens piece, we may agree. Yeah, we we need a world view that as at least grounded in 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 reason. But is that sufficient? And if it's not, then how do we come to agreement? around the Jerusalem piece, given that it's above the divided, Plato's divided line, you know, that's in the realm of metaphysics, that's in the realm of the of forms, that's in the realm of narrative, it's in the realm of metaphor and parable, and other things which aren't necessarily rational, they come to a leap, they tell a story, they ignite something in the in the mind or in the spirit, that could not have been ignited by a, a rational sequence of steps. It's that's the kind of magic I think of that of the um, that that exists in that realm in the in the realm of Jerusalem in the realm of faith in the realm of you know w which all the religious traditions have have had some spark of that. Is that necessary going into the future to motivate people? to orient people in ways, in relation to others, in relation to their own lives, you know, both individually and collectively, uh, in ways that are, uh, in ways that mere reason can't. Uh, of course, I'm asking this as a question, but I, I think the answer is yes. But you know, it, it does begs a whole series of further questions yeah. as well. How do, we, how do we achieve any kind of consensus around that? Exactly. I think that's because... I think the reason why there is such a strong anti-religious sentiment, especially, for instance, in in uh, in the countries that Knutuba and I come from, in, in Norway and Sweden, is because uh, it is perceived as that that uh, religious uh, religions or, or revealed word has caused more uh, conflict in its interpretation than it has caused the uh, elevation and, and inspiration and um, yeah so i think i think the question that that you pose and that this could be maybe something that we pursue in the next step is that uh, uh what do we but need I, to, to go into the future and, and does rationality help us and how yeah if, if i should try to say with in, in my words i would say that it, there has been a fight against uh, religion and truth or wisdom in the Western society. And this fight has been like a, a, a heavy fight where religion, the, the, the best fighter in many, in many years, many decades, but then the truth in, in some way uh, managed to, yeah. And, and the fight 
I think it is, is still going on in some way. And I think also that if you if you div if we divide this idea about wisdom and and divinity, then we 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 still the fight will go on. But if we understand divinity and the metaphysics as something above the limit of what rationality and science could be able to do, then we could keep them more alive, both of them, as real discussions with real questions, maybe. I'm not sure if I'm, I agree with myself on that one. But, but anyway, mm. I, 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 to Stephen, the, the, one of the questions about this, about rationality and sufficiency, is also that what would happen if rationality was sufficient? If we actually came to a place in our historical movement where we we actually lived with one common rationality what would happen i i wonder if in this in this century or in this past century the 20th century we have experimented sufficiently with that idea to have determined that it's not their way forward mm. in other words have we experimented sufficiently with political philosophies ways of being which are attempt to be purely rational which attempt to take god and faith and religion entirely out of the equation you know communism for example uh, other systems of thought which are um which are uh try to take that out you say okay this has been a cause of issues in the past religion obviously is a cause of intense conflict between people there seems to be no way of reconciling one religion from the other hey science works why don't we try to base a, a, a culture on science alone? Um, and I just mentioned communism, but you know, you have you have Comte and others, you know, in Europe, you have all sorts of, of examples of people trying to set up systems which are like purely rational. Have we had enough sort of experimentation with those to determine whether that's enough? You know, given the the the, the full parameters of the human being which include a psychological component, which one can't simply dismiss. And maybe that psychological component is such that we can't do without narrative, story, a larger sense of purpose, which while we want that and, and need that to be consistent with the, the raw, brute facts of the universe as we understand them, nevertheless, we understand that these narratives are going to reach beyond and and tell tell stories and give uh and and give information not information but but give inspiration which is not purely of a, of a rational nature yeah so the, the, we, we have to distinguish between uh, some kind of if we understand wisdom and truth as as a, it becomes fundamental if we believe that we actually have got Got it, uh, and this and the continuing search for a truth of wisdom, and I, I think that's a very important distinction to to keep in mind in our life. Well, yeah, uh, one, one comment on Steve, you know, on on, uh, on Cameron about this uh, uh, common intellect or universal rationality or something. I, I, I read a Norwegian uh, philosopher 
wrote wrote the book this year, and he argued for a common rationality. And his simple argumentation is that whoever we are, two adding two becomes four for every human being, wherever. And pi, Mm. that's something that every human are able to to grasp. Mm. Mm. And that's for him, that's and he has some more examples in logic and in and uh, you know the, the the three of us are able to talk together in this way is because we do understand the way we argument hmm. and I, I believe that every human being are able to understand the argument and the way of rationality and that's also why i i think that if if the we if there had been a just a continuing clash between religion and truth the, the the truth would in one way or another it will win because you can't fight truth it's it's um <laughs> it's not it's just something that ex- exists it's not something you can <laughs> mm. can say yes or no to mm. that, that's my opinion <laughs> yeah yeah i guess the question is how we can how we can sort of Ease our ways into that, into that uh, truth, and and yes, I I think that uh, there is a lot of empirical evidence that that human minds work very similarly, and 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 our rationality is universal. I guess the problem that arises when people of different ideologies differ strongly is not so much perhaps the rational process, but the axiology on which that process is built, and and of course that is then. An issue in itself that that um, how can we agree on a on a common axiology for our rash, rationality? Meaning the axioms we begin with. Yes, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I think I think that uh, the the reason we sometimes sometimes even rational or people with a rational capacity do not conquer is because they have so widely different uh, axioms that mm. that it is. But then I also would like to say something about this thing about psychology and emotions because um, it's very interesting. You know, I, I myself and a Middle Easterner who has grown up in the uh, West and uh, somehow I think Western thinking has elevated emotions, maybe because culturally they're sort of underrepresented in the West. Whereas if you read many, uh, I come myself from Persia, so if you read many Persian poets and philosophers, they on the contrary are trying to say that we should sort of keep our emotions under control because that's a culture where emotions <laughs> sort of uh, overabound. And, and uh, uh, so I wonder whether whether our emotions and and psychology could not arguably be something as it were sub-rational and uh, if if we were to become more rational we could have them under control and and make better decisions but that Mm -hmm. then there's something which is supra-rational which is not irrational but supra-rational and I think that is the real Jerusalem that that uh, it it sort of evokes our rationality and and our rational 
uh, understanding, but it also evokes our rational amazement and that you know sense of mystery that great thinkers like Einstein uh, experience when they use their rationality to the extreme, I mean, to, to hmm. their limits. Um, so I, I would just like to want to make a distinction between sort of fulfilling our lower needs of, you know, some sort of balance or satisfaction or something, and, and our higher capacity, uh, which is uh, more than rational, rather than being of less quality than Russian. I think that was a nice ending in the introduction um, of the of our podcast. Viktor Frankl says something about this, uh, and it's it's about this different dimension in human, and we often just end up in the lowest dimension of. And it's interesting because we we create an like a hierarchy in human. And uh, hmm. yeah, in, in, my, in my opinion, I, I, be, I believe there are some hierarchy inside me. Hmm. <laughs> but that's also <laughs> something we might discuss. Hmm. Okay, great. So thank you for listening to our podcast this time. And I'm um, looking forward to have a new podcast. So hmm. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem. Created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Ovese. Nora Julist broadcasts voice and technical support. Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer, and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening, and please check out another episode.